Welcome to the Uzima Health and Wellness Podcast. What did the doctor say? Hi. How are you? Hi, how are you? Doing very well. Very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, doctor. <laughs> That's a great shirt, by the way. Thank you. I'm going to get the custom Uzima Health and Wellness shirt made, but right now this will have to do. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. It works well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. to. Um, of course. I create Uzima Health and Wellness um, to do exactly some of the things that you, you are doing, and that is to do community outreach, uh, to create a conversation around mm -hmm. the social political determinants of health, to make it a word that we all can engage in. Uh, so I, uh, I've been very impressed with your podcast, but let me- oh, Thank you very much. <laughs> With a, a, a very good introduction, you are an assistant professor at Yale School of Medicine and Department of Psychiatry. You are a Duke graduate. I think they yes. call you Dukes. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> For her work, yeah. uh, PhD uh, from Yale, two thousand and seven. So saw that you really did a sprint from getting your bachelor's to your uh, uh, PhD. Um, you own a lab or you have a research lab, and so you own it, uh, where you, you are um, federally funded to research uh, some of our challenges in substance abuse, anxiety, and depression. Mm -hmm. um, you work tirelessly in uh, faculty, both uh, mentoring faculty and students. Uh, you work in diversity and inclusion um, and equity. Uh, programs. Uh, and you've also, on top of that, been able to uh, have time for community events and create town halls and conversations around mental health and engagement. Um, so I guess the question is, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of all of the above. Yeah, who are you, Dr. Addy? Yeah, so to go all the way back to the beginning, so both of my parents grew up in Ghana, West Africa. So I'm also the son of immigrants. They immigrated here in the 70s. And that's part of the story as well, um, uh -huh. because they took advantage of opportunities they had to further their education uh, when they came to this country and instilled that. Uh, they're both from Accra. Okay, I've been there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, excellent, excellent. It's a wonderful picture. Yes, I'm yes. from Cardiff and Accra. That's I'm very impressed, I'm very impressed. So you spent some time there. Did you enjoy your time? I did, I did. I think that it was uh, a meaningful tour. I mm. definitely went to our castle. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, forgive me, it's blanking me probably from the excitement to to see where the, the, the door of no return. Mm -hmm. And okay, I took my 17-year-old uh, uh, mm. nephew uh, mm -hmm. to experience that as well. So those pictures, I know that he will look back on and, and, and be like, I went there. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a lifetime trip that I yeah. did. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely impactful, emotional, and all, you know, all those components all at once. So mm -hmm. I have that that family legacy as well. Um, and with them coming to the States and mm -hmm. all that they went through taking advantage of opportunities, they instilled some of those um, components in me at a young age. Granted, I didn't really grasp them mm -hmm. early on, to be completely honest. I'm sure mm -hmm. I gave them a bit of grief, uh, not really taking my, you know, my schooling seriously at a young age. But there was a turning point where mm -hmm. I really took ownership of that. And part of that, we moved to an area that was um, predominantly white because of some of the opportunities there. But that was part of my story as well. And to be honest, part of my motivation when I shifted was not wanting to be labeled as the dumb black kid in the class, to be sure. completely honest. Mm -hmm. So that was really, I mean, that's a key piece of my story. And it's something that I really took to heart. And of course, there were all the challenges that came along with that. You know, you mentioned that I went to Duke University. There were challenges and, and doubters along the way, I would say. And you could kind of read through the lens and say, okay, well, they're they don't know if this black kid can really achieve at that level. Mm -hmm. To be honest, that's really part of what motivated me at the beginning 
And I know that's an experience that others have had as well. So I always like to mention that because that's part of my story in terms of how I got to Duke in the first place and invested in some of the work that I'm already doing now. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Michigan primarily, um, but we moved around quite a bit. So we were also in Atlanta at one point, also in North Carolina, again, with my uh, parents' work and things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When did you decide that you didn't want to be the dumb black kid? <laughs> so it was actually in eighth grade when I basically failed a, a bug science project that we had. Mm -hmm. um, put it off till last minute, didn't put the work in, and just mm -hmm. having that experience of doing so poorly and wondering, that was when we were, I was first in that school for the first time. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, all the pieces that come up, you know, teenage years, wondering how people are going to look at me and really finally internalizing all of that and realizing, okay, I'm capable of a lot more than I'm actually putting the effort into. And so that, that was a turning point for me. And what was your major at Duke? So I majored at Duke was biology, but I also mm -hmm. had a neuroscience concentration. Mm -hmm. And that was through a conversation that I had with my psychology professor. I asked him what major he thought I was really curious about psychology and trying to invest in some of those components. And he actually told me not to be a psychology major, mm -hmm. which to be honest, was a little bit distressing to me. I was like, what am I doing wrong here? My psychology professor is telling me not to go into this. Am I doing, am I not cut out for this? Mm -hmm. um, but I think what he saw was my love for biology. Mm -hmm. And so he thought that would be a better place for me to kind of investigate some of these aspects about the processes in the brain that contribute to mental health. And it's funny because I've come full circle and I definitely pull in a lot of psychology. Now I've also done an internship with psychology interns mm -hmm. during my sabbatical to learn some of those components. But yeah, initially my major was biology focusing on the neuroscience component of things. My question to you is we look at a, a drop in, of course, black males in college, mm -hmm. uh, black males uh, entering into higher education, mm -hmm. uh, black males entering into clinical medicine. We are mm -hmm. at a critical low for these numbers. Uh, my question to you is, did you experience uh, this sense of othering uh, along the way that said, you know, why don't I just get my degree, get a job and call it a day? Did you experience that type of, uh, you know, discouragement subtly uh, or blatant along the path? Yeah, I would say it was a mixture of both, sometimes subtly, sometimes blatantly. I was fortunate to also have those who were supportive along the way. So for your question now, I mean, I remember going to some conferences and trying to ask people who were presenting that were trying to ask them questions. And you can tell they were just completely dismissive. They weren't taking me seriously. They were saying things like, oh, well, maybe someday you'll have something you can present here. You know, it's just like <laughs> that kind of how that whole you don't belong basically was the, uh -huh. the vibe that I got from those people. Fortunately, I also had people who were really supportive. So mm -hmm. the laboratory that I worked in, the principal investigator was really supportive of me, gave me opportunities to go to these conferences in the first place. Mm -hmm. wanted me to stay, I actually stayed in the lab, worked for two years as a technician after mm -hmm. undergraduate, mm -hmm. plugged me into different programs. I got to do some programs with other minority students. Mm -hmm. So it was also helpful to be with other like-minded people, other people mm -hmm. that look like me, and then also to have some professors that look like me as well. I say that really transformative part for me was in grad school when I was participating in a program called the Summer Program in Neuroscience, Ethics, and Survival. Mm -hmm. And that was started by two pioneers, Dr. James Townsell, and Dr. Uh, Joe Martinez, both who passed away recently, but they were deeply invested and had put years into really training other minority students to mm -hmm. give them the skills and the, the equipping that they needed to succeed and then being those examples themselves. So yeah, it's a bit of both. I had the dismissive, I had the microaggressions, but I also had strong support that really gave me the skills and the, the support network that I needed to be able to thrive in this, in this endeavor. My question, did you play any sports? Were you the athlete? 
uh, also at Duke? High school, not the Duke level. So played okay. basketball and ran track in high school. Um, but that, you know, that was, that's part of the story too, because the funny thing is I remember when I was interviewing for grad school. Mm -hmm. So typically grad programs will invite you out and, you know, mm -hmm. this is for all grad students who are applying to biomedical sciences and mm -hmm. wine and dine you try to entice you to, to, uh, to join their program. I remember being on specific flights and telling people that I was going to schools and they were saying, oh, are you getting recruited to play basketball? It's like, right. no, I'm actually looking at grad schools. There are other options for us as black males in this country, right. but that's that's the first thing that always comes to mind. So mm -hmm. I remember uh, watching a medical student who was over six feet uh, mm -hmm. become a very black male being, mm -hmm. being very agitated at saying, why do they keep asking me? <laughs> if I play basketball, mm -hmm. he's like, you know, and, and it's those type of subtleties mm -hmm. that people don't describe as racist, mm -hmm. uh, but they're stereotypical, mm -hmm. they are discouraging along the way. Uh, and we have to live that experience while trying to get a degree. And I think that, um, you know, that is a common com a conversation that we can all have by the campfire or as mm -hmm. well, let's say if we could drink beer, have a beer, <laughs> we mm -hmm. would do that. Yeah. Um, but that's something that need that people need to be pointed out. They're like, well, that's not racist. That's a natural question. But do you get asked that question every day because you're over six feet and you're in an esteemed or what we call a privileged white institution? Mm -hmm. Why am I asked um, or just assume that I'm here because I offer some type of physical uh, physicality mm -hmm. uh, to this university. Right. Uh, and I think that's uh, one of the things that we can subtly kind of agree needs to kind of stop happening. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, again, people think it's benign, but we have a cumulative uh, experience of that, even mm -hmm. said in the eighth grade. That's why mm -hmm. I asked you, when did you have this turning point? Because young black males uh, sometimes fall off between sixth and eighth mm -hmm. grade. Mm -hmm. As the data shows that they are sometimes viewed as other mm -hmm. and they have to tap into these physical attributes, football, track, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. get that scholarship to Stanford, to get mm -hmm. that scholarship to Michigan or Notre Dame. They're smart. They know they're smart, but they mm -hmm. have to tap into that kind of kinetic energy. Um, yeah. We recognized. Yeah. And for uh -huh. me, it's followed me all the way through, to be completely honest. Uh -huh. So even at, when I was a faculty member, I had summer undergraduates in my lab they're presenting their research and people are coming up to me, oh, do you have a good summer experience here? So there's still that, well, you you must be a student. You can't be a professor here because that's <laughs> just not, I mean, that's not what they said, but that's what their Implied. words were implying. It just was so outside of their framework that they couldn't even grasp that it's possible this might actually be a professor and not a student. Let me ask you, after you got your PhD, um, well, let's put the decision tree, MD, PhD. We say MD, manic, deranged, PhD, piled higher and deeper. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. <laughs> so what, which, what made you choose uh, the PhD? So that's, I'm laughing because I actually had a really hard time trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. So I was going back and forth. So I took two years off between undergrad and grad school because I was trying to decide, should I do the MD? Should I do the PhD? Should I try mm -hmm. and do the MD, PhD? Um, so I tried to get experience. I got some experience in different medical offices and things like that. And I think that, that tapped into my empathy and desire to help people. But I was also just really driven to really understand the science of what's mm -hmm. happening in the brain mm -hmm. and different mental health challenges. So eventually that's what steered me towards that direction. Um, I did consider the MD-PhD piece. Mm -hmm. Part of it was just trying to think about, to be completely honest, how long am I going to be in school if I go that route versus, mm -hmm. 
um, maybe being able to kind of get to the, the depths of what I really wanted to study early on, mm -hmm. earlier in my career. But a lot of that was just asking people questions, mm -hmm. getting the experience. My, my uh, advisor was really good about giving me that experience as a research technician to continue to go to conferences, talk to people in the field. I think I really just had a desire and a drive at that point to really understand the science. And I realized there was so much that I didn't know. So mm -hmm. I thought the PhD would be the best way to do that. Why the curiosity and mental health? You keep repeating that as if you had some um, uh, desire to understand that early on. Was there an experience that you had? or? Yeah, so I think part of that is exposure. So my father is a psychiatrist. So okay. when he came to the States, he actually came to the States to do his psychiatry residency uh -huh. through a variety of different God-ordained circumstances that opened up opportunities for him. So I think part of it was me seeing him go through that journey over time. I can't mm -hmm. put my finger on one specific instance, mm -hmm. but I think I was always just curious about behavior and mm -hmm. about the brain and how those things come about. Um, but I did have experiences as an undergraduate too. So the research lab I was in, we did a lot related to nicotine mm -hmm. uh, and smoking behavior, but also how people who struggle with schizophrenia have a much higher rate of smoking behavior, AIDS 90%. So I had some of these research experiences. I also spent time volunteering at a mental health hospital, so interacting with those patients on a weekly basis. So I think it was something that was just kind of emerging over time, not that I could pinpoint per se, but really just wanting to be able to have some understanding and still be able to help people in the way through the research. That's interesting because the two uh, psychiatrists, black male psychiatrists and prominent psychiatrists that I interviewed, Dr. Ron Bailey mm -hmm. and uh, Napoleon Higgins, again, say that there was some something in their childhood um, that made them comfortable with the subject of psychiatry mm. and mental illness and mm. also sparked their curiosity. So mm. when they went to medical school, um, and Dr. Ron Bailey is the past president of the NMA and mm. Napoleon Higgins has been in adolescent psychiatry for over 20 years in, in uh, Houston. Uh, he said his grandmother was a schizophrenic. He said, I just mm. knew my grandmother was a little different, mm -hmm. uh, but that's something that made him connect with uh, us, uh, mental health patients on, on his uh, rotation. So mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that we, you could, you didn't have a taboo about this subject mm -hmm. in, in uh, your childhood. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting. Um, I want to know, um, you know, substance abuse in the black community is again, that that's a webinar, that's a week long yeah. conference. <laughs> uh, so I, I can just pick it up from, um, you know, where I grew up in inner city Houston. Um, and I just remember in the 80s, uh, mm -hmm. by the time I was a junior in, in, in high school, that all the young black males that were playing football in the street and baseball were going away. Mm. And they were going away because they were going to prison. Mm. And they were entering the penal system, you know, at 16, 17. Mm. You know, where is Cat Daddy? Where is Bowleg? Where, mm. where is, I'm not making up names. These are what mm -hmm. their names. Mm -hmm. um, and they were gone. And then as I would cycle back home, I would see them and they looked haggard and tired and they had been in and out of the penal system, but it was the crack epidemic. Mm. That was very real. Uh, mm -hmm. for urban cities. Um, and of course, that uh, came along with that was the policy, the street, three strikes out. So your work in substance abuse, uh, tell us about it. Uh, because, um, of course, it has implications for how we address drug, drug abuse and usage in urban cities and rural communities as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I appreciate you sharing those stories as well, because that's that's the reality of what happened in so many areas of the country. And I think that's something that many of us have been thinking about for a while, but we still have to reconcile and reckon with on a much larger scale. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and as you mentioned, it's also that's a huge topic that we could go on for a while about as well. Um, I would say for our work, what we've really been trying to understand is what happens in the brain, both in terms of substance use, but then also when we think about substance use disorders or substance abuse and mm-hmm. what the, the nuances and differences are between that casual use or something that makes it difficult for someone to continue in their life functions. Um, so a lot of times what we're trying to do is to understand that in the brain, but also think about potential therapeutic targets that could decrease some of the craving that's associated with that if someone really is trying to get to a better place of not uh, overusing or abusing specific substances. Mm-hmm. Then all the societal implications that you mentioned as well are definitely there, um, mm-hmm. just in terms of how substance use is characterized or attributed to specific individuals. And I know others have written about this. Dr. Carl Hart has written about this recently. But the way in so many of our Black and Brown communities that that is really vilified and sometimes justified by others as a way, again, of othering Black and Brown individuals in terms of how those individuals are treated. I mean, even as you were talking about your experiences in high school, I'm thinking back to my own experiences in high school. Again, Mm -hmm. I went to a high school that was predominantly white, but there was still drug use, but those people weren't going to jail. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a totally, I mean, that's a much larger, again, societal conversation, but it's a totally different reaction to individuals in certain statuses or in certain environments versus Mm -hmm. others. And so there's still a lot that we have to do there. I mean, I think what our research is really showing is that it's, there are so many components that are complex about this as well. Because we're also looking at the intersection between substance use and substance use disorders and anxiety disorders or things where, you know, we're looking specifically in animal models, but if the animals have gone through something that's stressful or traumatic, how mm-hmm. there's a higher likelihood for those uses to occur. And so that's not something that we always talk about. We just vilify, oh, why are these people doing X, Y, and Z? Instead mm-hmm. of thinking about what's the broader context that people are experiencing, how's that influencing the use, and then how are we reacting to that use in the in the first place as well. Um, so I think our work is contributing to that conversation and giving us a better appreciation of what's happening in the brain, but also we need to think about societal-wise how all those things start to impinge. Mm-hmm. So it's not a clear answer, but we're starting to make some progress. So in some of your, your uh, information in your video, you said the, the rodent brain, you mm-hmm. can use that to model what's going mm-hmm. on human brain. Can you explain that uh, for an eighth grader? (laughs) Yep. Yep. So yeah. And the question that people always ask me is, well, how do you know? So we're using looking at rats and mice. How do you know if they're dealing with substance use challenges, if they're anxious and Mm -hmm. or if they're depressed? Mm -hmm. That's a valid question. What we can do is look at behaviors in the rodents that are associated with some of those mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. So for instance, the rodents will actually take substances that people will take. And if we give them access, they're really good at titrating how much they want. They can also go through periods of abstinence. They can go through periods of withdrawal. If they're in a certain environment, they'll actually try and get the drug more so. So they'll show some craving type behaviors. So one of the things that we look at in particular is relapse. So thinking about animals that have been using, say, cocaine for a certain period of time, they have a period of time where they don't have access to that. If we put them back in the environment where they were used to taking that drug, and we mm-hmm. give them cues that are associated with that drug taking, they'll start to take again. So that's similar to someone, let's say someone, you know, grew up in a certain environment, used drugs a lot in that environment. And this, these are from conversations I've had. They'll leave that environment, maybe go to a rehab center, right. be clean. They'll come back. They're in that same environment. What we see looking at the rodents is there are a lot of processes in the brain and certain chemical messenger signals that get activated when they're in that environment that contribute to the craving and the relapse. So we can look at that behavior in the animals, also look at what's happening in the brain and see if there's certain 
interventions or medications we can use to kind of dampen that response, keep the animals from craving and relapsing. And those same things can be applied to people as well. So it's really a direct correlation. And we can do the same thing with anxiety-related behaviors and depression-related behaviors. So we I have to ask ourselves, what is driving the addiction? Mm -hmm. Do you believe or have you found that there is uh, there are patients who uh, genetically are predispositioned to be addicted? Or do you think that there is some psychiatric um, maladaptive behavior or uh, some diagnoses that drives the need for addiction? So it's a, it's a little bit of both. And then on top of that, you, you add in stressors that people experience, whether those are racial stressors or other traumatic experiences. And those also heighten the likelihood that people will use or get into a place of abuse as well. So it depends on what type of challenge you're talking about. Definitely within the alcohol field, there's a lot of evidence showing that there's a genetic component. So some people are much more susceptible to develop alcoholism than others due to genetics. But then that also impinges upon what environment people have, have grown up in, whether mm -hmm. someone else in the house was also struggling. But it also has to do with the environment in terms of the stressors. So whether people are struggling to make ends meet, whether there is ongoing racism and trauma, all those things can heighten the likelihood that someone will struggle. So it's really a combination of all the factors. And so I think the challenge for us is knowing how to integrate and think about all those components while also trying to understand each of the individual components as well. So for us within the research laboratory, we're really focused on trying to understand the components that happen in the brain um, and the genetic components that can influence that, but then also some of these experiential things that can influence that as well. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the, the are we trying to describe the etiology of substance abuse in black communities versus white communities is different when we began, like, for instance, we've had a, a, a before COVID mm -hmm. in this whole um, uh, drug uh, prevention uh, from, from prescription drugs campaign. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was an epidemic. Mm -hmm. You know, It was something that needed to be uh, addressed. I mean, mm -hmm. all now from telling uh, clinicians you know, that if you are overprescribing opioids, we will get you, we will identify mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. uh, don't do this. We will trigger systems uh, within the hospital system mm -hmm. that will let, let us know if you're uh, diverting or using drugs on a, you know, more of a, on a high alert, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you always, as a, you know, Black clinician, I'm like, okay, now when we had the crack epidemic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, did we think that there was an underlying uh, abuse of prescription drugs at that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because that didn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the historical documents, this prescription drug um, abuse did not happen overnight, but that was able to be dealt with differently. Mm -hmm. And so now that we are in uh, this, I guess, maybe I don't know what way we're in in terms of drug abuse, mm -hmm. we've had crack, we've always had heroin since the 60s. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, what is this? Um, um, there's another drug out, I forgot, that, that affected uh, rural communities very heavily. I'm, I'm blanking. Um, can you help me? Uh, I'm forgetting too, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Amphetamines type drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so we're, we are, you know, we're in that phase. Now we have prescription drugs, but, but mm -hmm. we, what we can see is that every time it's been dealt with differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my question is, are, have you read anything about the description of um, of how white communities characterize their, their substance abuse disorders. Is it any different? 
Yeah, that's that's a good question. So I haven't read specifically on that. I can speculate based on some of the things that I've heard so far. And I think what you're also getting at is just the, the huge component of cultural competence and really knowing mm-hmm. what people's backgrounds are before they get to your office. So on the one hand, you know, we can create these systems and say, well, this is how much you can give and we're going to monitor you and stop you once you get to this point. Or you can say, well, what's the environment that you're working in and how can we actually help people make more improvements in those environments? So not knowing exactly how that's viewed in white necessarily versus black communities from reading the literature, but just knowing anecdotally that there are so many important components of that. So I have a lot of colleagues who are doing this work in church communities, in black church communities Mm -hmm. and showing that if you meet people where they are, it's so much more effective in terms of trying to help people move forward. So it's not taking a system that may be built on other cultural frameworks or a white framework and putting that on top of the black community but meeting people where they are and Mm -hmm. and adjusting as need be Mm -hmm. um and sometimes there's pushback so there is you know people do things like medication assisted treatment for Mm -hmm. things um, Mm -hmm. within opioids and that can be really effective but sometimes you run into cultural um, challenges there where people don't want to be on another medication because they think they might abuse that one as well So it really is important to know the language of Mm -hmm. those that you're working with, where they're coming from, Mm -hmm. and to be able to move things forward. So I say there are definitely differences. It's hard for me to know exactly what those are, but I think that's part of the homework that we have to do. That's right. And I think that um, as we, again, the socioeconomics of of drug abuse has to also play into Mm -hmm. even the uh, racial component as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Because if you have just, you know, if you're just poor, low socioeconomics, Mm -hmm. you know, your addiction and your stressors in Mm -hmm. life it doesn't matter what your race is. Mm-hmm, and that's exactly. one, of the, one of the commonalities that we can try mm-hmm. to begin a uh, campfire uh, kumbaya about. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you this. You had a, you tried to describe in one of your videos uh, the difference between a habit and addiction. Because some people say, I'm not addicted. I can finish, I can stop whenever I want to and have mm-hmm. demonstrated that ability. So can you talk about that? Can you explain yeah. that? Yeah, that's 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 great a great distinction to make because it becomes unclear in a lot of ways as well as you mentioned. So in a habit, we often try and describe it in terms of what's happening when you perform a specific action. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, I like to use let's use a little like a benign kind of playful example of thinking about a vending machine. If I mm-hmm. went to a vending machine, and I'll use my own self because I like Skittles. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I go to a vending machine, I put money in and I get those Skittles out, then I've gotten that reward. So I'm mm-hmm. performing the action because I'm getting something out of it. If I develop a habit, I'm going to go to that vending machine and put money in regardless of whether I get skills or not. And I'm not going to be able to stop because now it doesn't matter what the outcome is. It's just something that I'm going to do regardless. Mm-hmm. So when we think about that in terms of substance abuse as well, so those two pieces do actually go together. So there mm-hmm. is a habitual drug taking that can occur regardless of what the outcome is. And that's one of the things, one of the 11 components that's associated with addictive like behaviors as well. Mm-hmm. But that can extend to other areas as well. So it's not just a habit, but it's also sometimes continuing to use a substance if there are negative consequences associated with that. Mm-hmm. So whether that's physical consequences, you know, interpersonal psychological consequences, continuing to use that substance def- despite the detrimental components that are associated with that. There's also additional components like craving. So the habitual part that we think about is just one component, mm-hmm. but in terms of addiction and abuse, it's a much larger arrays of behaviors that somewhat are associated with habit. But to your example, if someone is able to quit and stop, that would suggest that they haven't developed it into a habit at that point because mm-hmm. 
if they're no longer getting the good outcome, they are able to stop that behavior. But it's an important distinction to make. I mean, because, you know, we, you know, and I'm, I know that, um, you know, your words are eloquent, but I'm going to give you examples. The mom mm -hmm. who is able to hold a job mm -hmm. um, and uh, has a weekend crack binge mm -hmm. or weekend, um, you know, heroin binge. Mm -hmm. uh, Monday, somehow or another, they're sober, even alcoholism. Mm -hmm. we, 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 we call them functioning yeah. addicts. Mm -hmm. okay? But they say, no, this is a habit. This is something I can stop. Then we have the stories of them where it starts out that way and then it progresses. Mm -hmm. And now you've lost the house, the mortgage is behind. Mm -hmm. uh, now we're getting into criminal activity. Mm -hmm. uh, the addiction, uh, the habit has become an addiction and addiction has now taken over into some mm -hmm. very functional and, and, and the consequences are, 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 are uh, detrimental. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, you know, I know that I can point to someone, I can't say everybody, but I know mm -hmm. that I can point to people in either my community or social uh, close family circles that this um, is the reality that we've we've experienced with our loved ones or friends. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's important for us to understand the habit, the addiction, uh, but the bottom line is with substance abuse, you need to get help, mm -hmm. whether, which, whatever you call it. It's, there mm -hmm. has to be at some point an intervention. Right, right. And yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it gets on that idea of dependence as well, because it gets to the point where people feel like they can't go on without the substance. And there's lots of components that contribute to that, sometimes mm -hmm. because the withdrawal is so intense. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times people are just taking to cut off that withdrawal that's so intense, mm -hmm. but then having a hard time figuring out how to move beyond that. Are you ever asked to explain your work outside of the neurosciences um, realm or uh, the scientific realm, maybe to help um, either social workers or educators understand uh, substance abuse and substance abuse disorders better? Yeah, that definitely happens in multiple different ways. So I've done events at public libraries where mm -hmm. I've just talked about what I'll call those sessions as the neuroscience of addiction, just mm -hmm. as a way to start the conversation. And so sometimes we have people who will come to those who are in recovery houses and want to just learn mm -hmm. more about it. Okay. And I always see those as both two-way conversations. That's not me coming as the quote unquote expert just to disseminate information. Mm -hmm. I am, you know, sharing what I understand about the brain, but also listening to people's experiences as well. Mm -hmm. And those have been really enriching. I mean, a mm -hmm. lot of those individuals will come in saying, I don't see, I don't see addiction as an illness because this is something I did to myself. Which on some level is true. I mean, you have to take the substance to become addicted to it in the first place. But then at the end of the conversation, they'll say, okay, now with what we've talked about, I have a better understanding of what's happening in my brain with extended use of any specific substance. And I know that that's changed my brain mm -hmm. to a new normal in a sense. And so they have a deeper appreciation for things that they might need to change in their behaviors or ways to approach things to say that, yes, having this long-term use of this drug is actually affecting my brain and they have to take that into account. I also have opportunities to talk to clinicians um, and social workers, as you mentioned, just to talk about what we've learned as neuroscientists about these components to give them some understanding of that as well. But again, for me, I learn from all those stories that they share about their interactions with their clients and their patients. Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely a two-way conversation, much what I, I think we can have much more of in our communities, to be completely honest. Now, you identified a antihypertensive, uh, an antihypertensive that could potentially be effective in treating substance abuse addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what is the name of that antihypertensive? Yeah, so it's called Isratapine. I'll have to actually double check on the trade, the non-trade name, but it's basically something, as you mentioned, that's used for controlling blood pressure. And mm -hmm. it blocks specific channels in the brain 
They also have important functions for how our brain cells uh, function in different ways. And so, yeah, what we're finding is it seems to be very robust at decreasing the craving that's right. associated with drug abstinence and may also deal with some of the anxiety that comes during those periods of abstinence as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now we get to the most exciting part, <laughs> and that is the launching of your Addy Hour. Yes. Um, what prompted that is if you don't have enough to do between the <laughs> Addy Lab, the Addy community events, uh, to add uh, the Addy Hour. Yeah, I'd say what prompted me was what I felt was really a need to be able to have these types of conversations like the one we're having right now, this really at an intersection. Um, so a lot of what I've been able to do over the years is also talk about the intersection of mental health and faith on college campuses and in communities, as I talked about before. So when I give those talks, there's always interesting dialogues that come up. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember speaking at one college and I had a student who asked a question and said, well, um, well, I understand everything you're saying. She was actually majoring in neuroscience, but she said, how do I help my family members? So she had an aunt who was struggling with, uh, I think, depression or anxiety mm -hmm. and wasn't getting any better. And her aunt was being told the only reason she wasn't getting better is because she wasn't praying hard enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, as a person of faith, I had very mixed reactions to that comment mm -hmm. because I do believe in the power of faith and the power of prayer and the power of God to heal. But I'm also a neuroscientist and I'm definitely not going to ignore all that we know about the brain. So for me, that was really challenging to hear that that person was basically missing out on all those opportunities. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I remember teaching a class at Yale to some of our medical students mm -hmm. and talking about, again about what happens in the brain during periods of drug relapse. And I had a student raise their hand and said, oh, that, you know, that all sounds good, but what are we supposed to do with those people who think that a higher power can help them with their substance use challenges or their mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. so now on that side, I have someone who's completely dismissive of the faith community and the power of faith to move through those things. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like I had these two different worlds that I was trying to navigate, both of which had problematic components, not intentional, but problematic components mm -hmm. because they were looking at things with a singular lens. Mm -hmm. So saying only through a faith approach or only through a basic science approach or pharmacology. And so it really kind of got at my passion for really making sure that these these conversations were integrated because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's so many different components of mental health. So think about things like we've even talked about here, all the racial injustices that are happening, racism, the microaggression, socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. psychological components. Mm -hmm. So really, I wanted to have a conversation similar to what we started in our town halls that could be at a much larger scope. And mm -hmm. so bringing a podcast seemed like a good way to be able to do that, to really get that message out there. And mm -hmm. to bring in guests who could talk about some of these challenges at the intersection of mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. So we hit on some heavy topics, but in a way that I think is really refreshing and also empowering for people as well. So recap some of your uh, your um, your podcasts. I have yep. my notes. You recap. Re you tell me what uh, the scientists uh, took away, and I'll, I'll I'll make I'll tell you some of my notes. Yeah. So I would say for me as a scientist. It's mm -hmm. been gratifying to be able to take that science out of the science bubble yes. and really think about how does it integrate with everything else. So our first episode was called Wellness, Pandemics, Race, and Politics. Yes. So again, we were kind of hitting on everything at once, but acknowledging how microaggressions and racism can actually affect your brain. And, and as you mentioned before, it becomes taxing over time, the continual othering, the continual stressors that come with that, and thinking about how that can affect your mental health. But then also thinking about the power of community to come together with other like-minded individuals who have gone through that and also gain support through that. So for me, that ties back to some of the neuroscience that shows the importance of being in community, 
showing how community actually affects our brains and can engage certain hormones like oxytocin that are important to actually help us and can be protective for our mental health. So it's really fun to see the intersection between what I know as a scientist with what I know about the challenges of racism, mm -hmm. with what I know about the challenges of politics. We also get into things about you know, all the political tensions that are coming up, um, just the ways that people have been trying to deal with all those. And really saying that we need to think about all those components, not deny the challenges that come with those things, but learning how to deal with all those stressors mm -hmm. and the anxiety to walk through them to get to a better place of wholeness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, let me just say some of the recaps for me. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, the first one, the term post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the intersection, I'm an anesthesiologist, mm -hmm. uh, the intersection that we have sometimes with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, mm -hmm. and suicide is mm -hmm. at the ECT mm -hmm. room, okay? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I was wanting more was the statement that we do have the psychiatrist who was able to administer um, electroconvulsive therapy for patients mm -hmm. who have really become uh, debilitated, uh, mm -hmm. incapacitated, unable to do basic needs for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, if they become that mind-body separation could make them that um, incapacitated that they need electroconvulsive therapy. And that's a big discussion, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and a big uh, jump in therapy. Um, we also, you know, with the psychiatrists have, you know, this, this whole, um, a stepwise approach to antidepressants, mm -hmm. uh, and then trying to decide if there's a mood disorder on top of these things, um, as well as if there's any type of maladaptive behavior. So we have this type of, um, you know, psychiatrist, psychologist, and then you as a neuroscience helping us understand mm -hmm. uh, basically clinically driven and proven uh, evidence-based medicine mm -hmm. uh, so that we can approach the patient, not just um, out of uh, witchcraftery, but more out of a scientific approach. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, so this whole, that, that kept coming up in your uh, podcast. So I appreciate um, hearing uh, both the politician and the um, scientist um, say, those post-traumatic stress disorders. I mean, your politician, politician, your political scientist mm -hmm. um, use the term a lot of this type of um, collective post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. which also are experienced on uh, during the riots. Uh, right. We never mm -hmm. saw it before. We never felt it before. I think we all were aghast as mm -hmm. a nation uh, mm -hmm. during that time. Um, we also, um, you know, and you almost have to think about the, the, the police officers uh, that were out there who mm -hmm. now are at risk of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you uh, of all you know, scientists and physicians, we know that these type of events um, for someone who's, who's experienced cumulative events mm -hmm. uh, or even this one traumatic event can put them at risk for substance abuse. Mm -hmm. would you I would definitely agree. And the triggering is so high. I mean, that's one of the things that's so clear in the mm -hmm. research, once you've been through those stressors, it makes it that much more likely mm -hmm. that, yeah, exactly, that you're going to be at, at risk. And we also agree there's not enough uh, psychotherapists mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. uh, and um, that this could um, also make them suffer in silence mm -hmm. with uh, one of your guests, Dr. Alfie said, you know, this this thing of, of and, and Doc, uh, uh, Doug Milton, we, got, mm -hmm. we actually gave him the title doctor. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> He's Dr. Middleton. He's Dr. Milton right. now. <laughs> so so that, that basically you feel alone, mm -hmm. uh, that you're suffering in silence. Um, 
And then I, I love the fact that you have uh, sports uh, men, uh, um, Doug uh, Middleton and Alan Houston. I remember him mm-hmm. and that name uh, on your podcast because it's important for us to, again, reach out across other disciplines and mm-hmm. the athletic world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, Alan Houston used the word pain. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated him, um, you know, invoking that, you know, the experience of pain, isolation during COVID is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how he, you know, managed that, and he compared that to an injury, uh, and that this could be short term. Um, and then you talked about uh, the issue of suicide and suicidality, mm-hmm. um, and that this is a, oh, I think it was Middleton who, mm-hmm. who talked about his friend uh, who died by suicide, and that this was a a short-term, uh, a long-term fix to a short-term problem, mm-hmm. but that people are in pain. And the goal, of course, is to uh, try to uh, get out of that pain. Exactly. Um, and then lastly, uh, which I thought was, and I could listen to the last podcast over and over, was the inheritance of trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, that could have been hours upon hours of discussion. Uh, and I trained at Grady as well. So okay. I oh, wow. know... Yeah. Uh, the uh, experience, uh, there's a Kiesler uh, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, who, who uh, spoke about the Grady Project. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did rape crisis there. I did my uh, internship there. And uh, he's right that we could never tease out the substance abuse uh, without a history of trauma mm-hmm. uh, in those patients, particularly in the 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I think that um, this may explain, you know, when we talk about drug addiction, uh, in the community, we have to kind of think about the social, political, the structural mm-hmm. racism, uh, socioeconomics. I mean, it's just such a big onion to peel back. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is we don't have enough uh, people in the uh, field of psychiatry, mm-hmm. uh, mental health uh, counselors, um, and uh, we have to rely on the church. That goes back to the conversation about the church. So mm-hmm. my question is, have you tried to put, uh, create a curriculum for where, whereby spiritual-based counseling can be more scientific-based mm-hmm. and then people can go to where they feel comfortable, mm-hmm. but they are getting more of a scientific structural approach to the therapy? Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't been involved in it directly, but part of what we're trying to do on the podcast is make sure those resources are known. So mm-hmm. I do have a colleague at Duke University, Dr. Warren Kinghorn, who has, uh, who's both a theologian and a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So unique in a sense that he's on both sides. And so he's been able to contribute to some of these, one is the mental health resources for faith leaders for exactly mm-hmm. that purpose, mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And he's also has close colleagues that he works with, particularly mm-hmm. um, a group of individuals in Harlem who started the Hope Center a the few Hope years Center. ago. Yes, mm-hmm. the Hope Center. And they're mm-hmm. actually going to be guests on the next podcast. So they're going to talk about exactly that, really bringing the science and the psychotherapy and those components into the community through a church setting to be able to make sure that people have access to those to those resources. Another great project is the Imani Project that was started by colleagues at Yale with the same type of thing, actually doing substance use recovery work in church settings and partnering between mental health professionals and pastors in those settings. So I think everything you're saying is exactly right. And it's really making sure that people feel equipped um, because in a lot of ways, I think the church is the first line of defense in a lot of ways. People will go to their pastors as that first intervention. Um, and so I, you know, I have friends who are pastors who say sometimes they feel like they're expected to know everything and mm-hmm. to do everything. 
mm-hmm. which isn't fair to them. I mean, they are appointed um, and anointed in those roles, but they also need access to some of those other resources because they can't do it all on their own. So mm-hmm. it's on a lot of us who are neuroscientists, who are clinicians, who are mental health experts to be able to partner with those individuals to make sure that we make those resources available. Mm-hmm. I think that we, you know, the theologian, uh, 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 psychiatrist, uh, doctor, tell me his name again, please. Dr. Warren Kinghorn. Kinghorn. Mm-hmm. I think that his role is, is vital in helping um, faith-based communities understand that medication is not a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. It's not a sign of weakness. And I, mm-hmm. I do, um, uh, as an um, um, anesthesiologist, you know, I deal with drugs all the time. Mm-hmm. And and yes, um, you know, can you just give me a little bit of that medicine? You know, I'm like, well, you don't want this surgery. I'll give you what you need to do this safely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we so there's this fear of medications, period. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, but yes, we do need to understand it's not a sign of weakness um, mm-hmm. and that uh, these are the, you know, scientifically tried treatment protocols. Mm-hmm. I want to say that um, I'm going to end it, that there has been documented um, with the um, Joshua Gordon, he's the director of the National Institute of, of Mental Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a symposium and they are, and we are seeing an increase in psychiatric disorders uh, before COVID, uh, mm-hmm. after COVID diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And this is a real phenomenon. We don't mm-hmm. know how many people will now go from a, a you know, healthy, well-adjusted, hopeful life, mm-hmm. have COVID, uh, may not have had any type of need for hospitalization, but then on the other side of that, uh, become uh, diagnosed with anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. ability to basically re-enter the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one of your other guests noted that there was a lack of research right now. That might've been Dr. Alpha. We're not, it's particularly with her work at teenagers mm-hmm. that we don't know because the pandemic is still going on, mm-hmm. uh, what the, what the uh, research will show us about the suffering of particularly our youth, mm-hmm. uh, young adults who make up the workforce. Um, and so we also are seeing um, uh, capturing the fact that suicide is on the rise. Mm-hmm. And so with that, we definitely need to, uh, I guess, put all boots on the ground, as we say, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and get creative uh, with our strategies for helping mm-hmm. communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would include the Addy Hour. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Absolutely. And that's our goal. Definitely our goal to make sure that we can bring those pieces of the conversation to light and have those resources there so that people can, I think some of these conversations, a lot of us have been thinking about it, but not really talking about it right? or hearing mm-hmm. it talked about in the public space. Mm-hmm. So then we're kind of all left to our own conclusions without getting input from each other as a community. So I'm hopeful that this will also be a community endeavor in a lot of ways. Well, I will continue to follow. I've subscribed to the Addy Hour. I thought Thank I've met so many researchers. Uh, I'm happy to uh, bring light to their work. Mm-hmm. I think it's very difficult to sometimes get outside of our institutional walls mm-hmm. and just be comfortable with uh, having a conversation mm-hmm. um, and bringing communities together uh, to to say, yes, we can talk about this. And, and there's no dumb question. Mm-hmm. Um, and every perspective needs to be considered. Uh, but it's all about making strategies, would you say? Yes, I would definitely say that. And we okay. can all get those strategies as we work together. Okay. I'll talk to you all day. <laughs> so <laughs> to the Addy Hour. I hope that I can reach out to you again. I hope that I can consider yes. you a friend and an ally in this that. cause. And I want to thank you too for being more than what the paper says about you. You're genuine. Mm. 
uh, you uh, devoted your life to God, uh, mm. and you've, uh, accepted your mission and purpose. Uh, and I think that's from our ancestry. <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. And so I, I thank you for embracing that. I really, it's, it's a lot. So I appreciate it. Oh, I deeply appreciate that. And I appreciate all the work that you've been doing in so many important ways as well. It's a pleasure for me to be able to jump in and contribute even just being here today. Thank you so much, Dr. Addy. Okay. And thank I'll talk you. to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.